This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Arkells with their Tight Cat song. Tight Cats are humming. I'm, I'm not sure that humming is the verb I would be choosing right now. The Tight Cats are. Well, Rick Zamperin is in studio, host of the fifth quarter. Well, you're, what, you're, word, you're, what verb would you use? You're either humming or hawing. So if they're not humming, they're probably hawing. Uh, Whatever I, that means. They are. The Tight Cats are. Um, <laughs> they may be hee hawing. Come. <laughs> Saturday night. There is, uh, there are a lot of verbs you could put in there. <laughs> I think for the sake of um, not being a complete buzzkill to the mm. Thai Cat fans of the city, we'll probably, you know, we'll wait for one more game before we sure. really they're, harshen up our verbs. They're closer to groaning than humming. I think we could put it that way. They are. Uh, At least well, the fans are. I can tell well, you. That. Listen, you, I, I was, I was listening to the fifth quarter uh, after last game, and yes, the natives are restless. Mm-hmm. I heard. I'm trying to think when the last time was that I heard that many people who were actually angry, and I'm yeah. I'm coming back to the days of the one and thirteen, or sorry, the one and seventeen season, three and fifteens, yeah. And do you remember how they won that? By the way, I'll totally yes, off the one I, game I in the one and seventeen. How Neilon Green in overtime fumbles the football. The Ticats almost give it back to Saskatchewan. Uh, this is at Old Iverwin Stadium, and the Ticats ended up winning twenty-seven twenty-four in overtime. And did the Rough Riders that game not kick a field goal and hit the upright that it bounced? Out, I believe that it. Yes, I think that was the potential game winner in overtime. I think that maybe. would have given them an 0 and 18 season wow. if that ball had not hit the upright. And, and I don't gone think that's through. ever been done. 0 and 18. 0 and 18. I, I think the stamps way back in the 60s went 0 and 16. And uh, and there's been a number that went 0 and 10. And of course, yeah. in the NFL, you had Tampa Bay that went 0 and 14. I think yep. in the 14 or something or 16. And Detroit was 0 and 16. So yes, not too long ago. Either. Not too long ago, but yes, it's um. People are starting to get a little cranky mm. about this team. Uh, are you, first of all, are you shocked that they are this bad right now? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because at the start of the season, I thought this would be, and perhaps it could still happen, but uh, the way they're playing now, I don't I don't see them being an elite team. I thought they would be an elite team. You know, top top four. You know, you're, you're in the top half of the Canadian Football League right now. You know, that's occupied by Calgary, Edmonton, B.C., and you might be able to make a case for Toronto. At least the way they're playing defensively, Ricky Ray seems to be playing like his old self. Uh, so Toronto might be in that in that category, although I wouldn't put them there just yet. Uh, I thought this Ticats team would be elite. I thought Ottawa would be, you know, in that elite category as well, being the defending champs, having a lot of returning players on their team. I thought, you know, that, that would be the top four or five. Um, and I say no because, you know, given the injuries, which is nothing new with this franchise, and, you know, given the way they have played, because you can point to every game and every quarter in every game and say, you know what, they didn't just, they, they didn't play well that quarter. They didn't play well in those, in that first half or second half. They have not played a good game top to bottom at all this year. And now they have Calgary, the best team in the league, yes. who is still cranky for losing their first game in, I don't know, seven regular seasons or something. But it's been right. a long time since <laughs> yeah. they lost. And yeah. so they and coming are, off a great cup loss as well. They're a cranky team. And, and you know, oftentimes you'll hear a team talk about a, a, a trap game or something where, oh, mm-hmm. you know, they won't be prepared. I think they'll be more than ready for Hamilton to come in. This is going to be a tough game for Hamilton to yes. stay competitive in. Well, how about this stat And for Simone you? Lawrence isn't playing. And Simone Lawrence isn't playing. And, you know, Calgary's just darn good. And Charleston Hughes is coming back for the stamp. So, you know, but how about this stat? The last time the Ticats won in Calgary was 2004. Really? Danny McManus and the and the Hamilton Tiger Cats went to 3-0 and after a shootout victory against the Stamps in, as you know, Greg Marshall's inaugural season as a CFL head coach. They were 3-0. and They won that game in Calgary. I think it was like 
5624, something stupid like that. Um, that was the last time they, they won in Calgary. They've had some close calls. You remember the old uh, field goal um, tee? Uh, mm. with Luca Kanji and, and Andy Fantuz, the holder, and sliding off the tee. That was a winnable field goal kick uh, in the snow and didn't materialize. They've had some really close games out there, but Calgary always seems to get the upper hand, as they do uh, against most visitors. So what chances are you giving Hamilton of actually winning on Saturday? I think most people on this planet would say <laughs> slim to none. <laughs> you know, it, they they have to, I think, play a near flawless game, no turnovers, uh, play above uh, what's expected of them for sure, uh, have have the best game of the season, and I think they need Calgary to slip up, maybe take them lightly, which I don't think a, a Dave Dickinson head, uh, you know, coach team will do, uh, but maybe Calgary turns the ball over, maybe they have some bad luck, maybe they get an injury or two to keep positions, and, you know, the Ticats play very well, and they win this ballgame. Uh, what are the chances then? L- let's assume, which is unfair to do, but let's say they fall to 0 and 5 and then yep. they have Edmonton in Edmonton another yep. game out west did they do the Alberta swing mm-hmm. uh what chances are you giving them for that game man being 0 and 5 i guess it all depends on how they play against Calgary they usually play the Stamps pretty tough uh and, and the Stamps um, you know at, at McMahon they beat pretty much anyone um but i guess depending on how they play against Calgary even even whether they give the Stamps all they can muster and more I'm still giving the edge to Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton is uh, playing lights out football. They got another great game against BC coming up this week. Uh, Edmonton defensively is very good. Offensively, as we saw, you know, in the last game against Hamilton, they can move the ball and they can beat you with a run, and they can certainly beat you in the pass with Mike Riley. So that's that's going to be a tall order at 0 and 5 going in Edmonton. They'll be kind of demoralized and oh geez. That was yeah. That was going to be my know. next thing. If they lose to Calgary, yeah. is it better? You now this is a complete hypothetical, but is it better for Hamilton to get just obliterated by the Stampeders, so you get embarrassed, so you are so angry yeah. for the next, or is it better to lose by two or three points and in a heartbreak way? Because I start to look at those close games after close games yeah. and and well, start to become demoralized. Yeah. Demoralizing. Yeah, I mean, uh, look at Ottawa. They've they've lost a lot of close games this season, and uh, they always seem to you know bounce back and at least you know be in it up until the end. But when you're 0-5, or at least at this point 0-4, if you lose a close one against Calgary, your mindset could be, man, maybe this isn't our year. You know, we're trying our hardest, we're making some plays, we're just not getting there. But if they do get blown out, as they did against Toronto, as they did against Saskatchewan, as they did against BC, they might be thinking, man, maybe we're just not a good team. And so they go to Edmonton, and then who knows what happens there. And if they fall to 0-6... Then they might be thinking, okay, you know, this season's pretty much done, right? I'm playing now for my job, which sometimes gives a boost to a football team, and sometimes it doesn't because they think, okay, this is a lost cause. Yeah, there's a lot of baseball players over the years, I recall, that uh, as soon as their team was eliminated and it didn't matter anymore, man, they went on a tear and started hitting home runs left, right, right and yeah, center because you're off, just relaxed, right? right? Yeah. Is the pressure, we've heard, we've seen, and you've talked to a lot of fans on the fifth quarter, which again will be on Saturday night after, well, actually probably actually Sunday sun, morning. Sunday morning, yeah. Yeah, it'll be late. 12.30. Um, <laughs> but the people will be calling, especially if the Ticats lose. Yeah. Uh, that seems to be the um, well, I mean, the, the thing to get them to call. Case have, in point, after the game against Saskatchewan. You went longer we're, than we're the on time. The air, yeah, we're on the air at like 12.40. I think Will was in the studio, actually. We were on the air at 12.40, we went till 2 a.m., and people were calling at like quarter to two, and I'm thinking, go to bed already. Like, I appreciate you calling, <laughs> but seriously, you need some sleep. It's like that Saturday Night Live skit with Captain Kirk. <laughs> yeah. Get a life, people. Yes, exactly. Get a life. Yeah. Um, no, I, I'm all, all, so many of the people calling in have their darts pointed at Kent Austin mm-hmm. and his coaching staff. Yeah. 
is are those criticisms in your mind are they warranted are they fair those criticisms to be to look there as part of the problem i think the coach is always the easiest target um when a particular unit in football is not performing, a.k.a. the Ticats defense, you'll look at the coordinator, and that's why Jeff Reinbold is kind of under the fans' microscope. Um, and, and you know what? Whether this team is uh, you know, 2-3 and three or 0-5, oh I think if the team is not performing, the head coach is always going to take the brunt of some kind of abuse from the fans. Uh, I think it is somewhat warranted because, uh, let's face it, Tommy Condell left under mysterious circumstances. Which I know you don't think are so mysterious. I don't think they're so mysterious, given that he's back in the CFL and, and, and came back rather quickly. Um, you know, f- for someone who had, you know, uh, family issues or something family-related that he had to attend to, uh, those really, uh, you know, subsided rather quickly, and, and why not come back to Hamilton? Obviously, there wasn't a position for him, but... Uh, he didn't. He didn't become the offensive coordinator of the Argos. I mean, you know, he's a, a, a receivers coach. Um, so listen, I think some of the issues uh, with this franchise are self-made. Some of the decisions that they've made, coaches are always going to leave, whether it's uh, you know uh, through their own mind a right decision or not. Orlando Steinauer going to the mm-hmm. NCAA I think is a great opportunity for him. So you know th- those things are going to happen. Um, I think it comes down to basically. Uh, having your core group of players, which this team still has, and then building around that core. Injuries have kind of eaten away at that kind of game plan, uh, but still, you're coordinating your uh, uh, your player personnel department. Uh, obviously, general manager Eric Tillman, you know, plays a, a huge role in that, as does Kent in his uh, VP of Football Ops role. If you don't surround your core, your your meat and potatoes with all the other you know garnishes, so to speak, <laughs> you're you're not going to have a good football team. And what right is now it? We're in there. What is it, by the way? You mentioned injuries twice now. Why is this team always? I, I'm not going to point at Doctor Levy, for example. He's right. not even he's retired. But I mean, the years there's got to be something. Yeah. I don't know if it's the turf at Tim Hortons Field. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the training. I don't know if it's the. Uh, but this team seems to be perpetually among the most injured team in yeah. the league. And I, numerically, maybe they're not number one every time, but they always, Rick, seem to be mm-hmm. missing significant guys and, and a number of them. And for a, a great length of time. I've heard the turf kind of uh, philosophy or, or theory. Uh, you know, guys have gotten injured during training camp, which is held at McMaster. On the road. O- on the road, at Tim Hortons Field, uh, you know, in the weight room at times. You know, things just happen. You know, obviously, this is a violent sport. The Ticats aren't the only team with injuries. No, nope. look, look around the league. They have been, over the last number of years, including this year, uh, just seem to have more and more severe injuries. So, Or is it more that the fact that their guys who get injured, they have bad luck that their guys are their stars, whereas other teams lose Joe Schmarcola, and you can yeah. deal with that? Sure. I mean, that happens too. And, and you know what? Other teams lose superstars as well. Uh, you know, Darian Durant's a perfect example with Saskatchewan over the last couple of years before, you know, moving to Montreal, you always seem to be hurt. So, mm. you know, it's just the nature of the beast. Guys go down. It just would be nice if this franchise got a break from those kind of injuries to key players. As I say, you will have, if they lose on Saturday, you will have the folks calling again. I have no doubt. Mm-hmm. Again, screaming for the head of yes. Kent Austin. I can see... Less than 0% chance that Kent Austin gets fired or is somehow pushed out of the head coaching job mm. during this season. I don't know what might happen in the off season if they have, if this continues, but I can see no percentage of a chance that mm. Kent Austin does not finish the year as head coach here in Hamilton. Do you yeah. disagree? I do not disagree at all. I think this team can go, knock on wood, dare I say it, 0-18. I don't think at 0-17 they would fire Kent. Um, unless they knew in their heart of hearts that, okay, we're not going to keep him at all. 
the only other decision would be, uh, okay, Kent, Rowan 17, uh, who cares about the last game? You're no longer the coach. We'll make Jeff Reinbold or Dennis McPhee the head coach. For this last game, Kent, you're just the VP of football ops, and we'll reconvene in the offseason. I don't see that happening either. I think because of the power he wields as the vice president of football operations, I think he's going to be the head coach no matter what through the season, unless he decides, you know what, maybe we need a change. I'll just Because he's the guy who would have to upstairs. fire himself. Exactly, and say, all right, person A, B, or C, you're, you're now leading this team. I don't see that happening either. I think this is his season uh, to make or break what happens next year. So let's let's go through the Kent Austin era. This is year five. The first two years made it to the Grey Cup. Uh, year three, the East final and lost. Year four, the East semifinal last year against Edmonton and lost. So if they miss the playoffs, that's it. You've gone from Grey Cup, Grey Cup, yeah, to East final, to East semifinal, to out of the playoffs. Uh, that you know, it's, it's not trending in the, the right league. direction. Exactly. Yeah, they've been uh, yeah disbanded and, and folded. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Here, here's something that I want to ask you though, because. At 0-6, the reality is that they could, even if they went 0-6 and finished this road trip with two losses, mm-hmm. they could win a couple of games, uh, maybe three, by shortly after Labor Day, the way the East is, they could be in first place yeah. in the East. It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> is, that, is that a healthy thing, though, for the league that essentially what it would mean is the first third of the season, possibly the first half of the season... Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean anything. Are entirely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. They literally could have said, you know what? We've got a lot of injuries every year. We are not playing any of our stars mm-hmm. until Labor Day because it doesn't matter if we're 0 and 6, 0 and 7, 0 and 8. I can't see this as healthy for the CFL that you could have a team start this badly and still be very yeah. much in the thick of the playoff run. They're one game out of a playoff position. Yep. There, there's two rules of thought to this, you know, 18 game season and, you know, the, the official or unofficial start is Labor Day. Uh, number one is, yeah, you know, the first half of the season doesn't matter. You can go 0 and 8 and still make the playoffs somehow. It's happened before. You know, uh, BC was 0 and 5 a few years ago and they won, you know, the Grey Cup. So. Uh, that's somewhat good news for Ticats fans this year. Uh, the second theory is, or the second way to look at it is, uh, you know, the first half doesn't really matter. The second half, you know, you can get into it. Um, so, I mean, you're never out of it, even if you're over the first half. Uh, I see where you're coming from, though. I mean, why even attend the game in the first half of the season? Because it doesn't really matter. And in this case, for the Cats, you know, you still got games against Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal, those division rivals down the stretch where this first half really doesn't mean anything. Because if you do beat those teams, you're now gaining two points on those teams in the standings. So obviously it does mean something because if you are ahead of the game in the first half, you can have an easier path to a playoff spot or division title in the second half. But if you poop the bed in that first half, you can still catch up. I was listening to your fifth quarter last week, and I know that you mentioned that we have chatted on here before about the one division situation. Yeah. You brought that up. And I'm going to go back to that because yeah. at least then, if you had one division in the CFL mm-hmm. and you blow the first half of your season, even if you squeak into the playoffs then, you're going to have to play the best team in the league right. in your first playoff game. There is going to be something punitive for having not been there for the first mm-hmm. half of the mm-hmm. year. As it stands right now, as I say, do you think that Toronto is a powerhouse team? No. No, and so you could get in, even if the Ticats squeak in as the last team in the East and have to play the Argos, who's scared of the... I mean, yeah, they've they've won the first game, but no one's terrified of the Argos. It's not like playing against Calgary Edmonton or BC. No, and I'm not not arguing that we want the Ticats to not have success. The point is, though, they could be 0-6 and very much in the middle of Mm -hmm. a playoff hunt, and that doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense. (laughs) Well, it's like starting the baseball season... 
10 and 40. Worse than that, Rick. Yeah. It's worse being, than that. Yeah, be because a third of the season, yeah. there's 162 games. If you started 0 and 52. <laughs> and you're still in it. And you're still in it. And you go, no, that's it. Or in the hockey season, right. if you started 0 and 30. Yeah. And you but say, here's the difference, though. Uh, you know, in, in the NFL, in MLB, in the NBA, and in the NHL, you have 30-plus teams. The CFL, there's nine. So you, you just kind of get in the top three, pretty much, in your I division, know. unless there's a crossover. Uh, that's the main difference. I just, I just, I don't think it's with all the stuff the league is trying to do for credibility and get you know, with young fans and everything. I think yeah. when you look at it, and you go, wait a second, I can, I don't even have to win a game necessarily in the mm-hmm. first half, and I'm still a Grey Cup contender. That that does sound funky. Yeah. Anyway, we we got to run, but you will be on Saturday, well Sunday after Sunday the uh, <laughs> after the game against Calgary in Calgary. Tune yeah. in for Rick. Um, it's high entertainment, especially, I mean, I don't it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. If they lose and the people call in and they've had a few, you know, mm-hmm. a little, a few pops and they're a little angry. Oh, it is man. late at night. It is. It and is if fun. they are losing, you might go into the cabinet. It is. A, <laughs> it is high entertainment. Tune in right here yes. at 900 CHML fifth quarter with Rick Zamperin. Sir, thanks for doing this. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. Or later next month, pardon me, in August, my next guest is going to be releasing his second album. This one is called The Tide Turns. This is a little bit of it right now that you're getting a feeling for. Now, if you know... If you know a lot about jazz, if you're a jazz aficionado, you're listening to this right now, tapping your toe, bobbing your head, going, yeah, I, all right, I'm into this. I get this. And you probably, if you are into jazz, you you probably know Brad Cheeseman and his work. If you're not as much into the jazz scene, you probably would not be as familiar. Uh, he's an Ancaster guy, graduated from Ancaster High School, went to Mohawk College. He is now a bassist. He's a composer. His work has won numerous awards, including the Grand Prix de Jazz, which I am told is a really, really big deal. Uh, Brad joins me now in the studio. Brad, thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. What is the Grand Prix de Jazz? Um, so it's a, it's a prize that the Montreal Jazz Festival gives out every year to one out of um, ten kind of rising independent jazz performer or like groups from across the country, and they all go to the festival and they have a chance to kind of perform and give it their all and they pick one band at the end to uh, win this really incredible prize. It's a, um, there's a, you know, a big part of it is a cash prize component, which is nice, but it also includes um, a week of studio time at a really nice studio in Montreal um, that I just used to make this new album, um, as well as invitations to like the following year's festival. So I was just there a few weeks ago as well as another great jazz festival out in Rimouski, Quebec. Well, here's the thing. You're a young man. How old are you now? 29. 29. You're a young man. And I have to believe that as you're coming along in the world of music, most of the people that you either grew up with or played music with, if if they are like most people in society ventured into rock or ventured into, I don't know, pop or blues, or jazz seems like... It's a bit of a curveball for a lot of people. Why jazz? How did you get into jazz? I mean, it is kind of interesting because it's almost separate from the general scope of you know music and culture right now. But I kind of came about it from two different angles. So 
uh, in high school, I was really into a lot of you know progressive rock bands. Rush, yes. All, all See, I knew there was something brilliant yeah. about you. The high, the high school <laughs> staples. Yeah, absolutely. And then from from that side, I started getting into what gets called a jazz fusion. So bands like uh, Weather Report and Return to Forever, where you get a lot of those same elements of Rush in those bands, but bringing in some more of what we call like the jazz language, a little bit more improvisation as well. And at the same time, I just kind of happened across um, a couple, you know, big uh, jazz artists from the 50s, um, Charles Mingus, who's a great bass, bass player and composer, and Dave Brubeck, who's a really great piano player and uh, composer as well. And had you always been a bass player? Because, I mean, you play bass now and, and you compose. Have you always played bass? No, uh, bass is the, the most recent, the longest out of a, a long line of stuff I uh, been playing music most of my life. I uh, took piano lessons for uh, close to 10 years when I was Willingly? Singer. For most of it. <laughs> and um, switched to guitar for a couple of years in high school, then had the usual bass player thing of, I got kind of stuck with it, but then kind of fell into it, kind of learned to love it, then embraced it from there. But I think, am I, am I... A, am I insulting you? And B, am I wrong by saying there's a lot of people who don't quite understand jazz at the level that you play? I, I think it's, for a lot of people, it's a bit of a confusing genre of music. Yeah, I mean, is that fair? That's very fair. And that's pretty much where I was when I, I started. I mean, I didn't really begin to even dig into the music until I was already studying it at Mohawk College. And um, it's kind of um i think the thing with, with jazz is it kind of has its own language there's a lot of similarities to other styles that people might be more familiar with like the blues for instance um and it it does take some maybe engaging with it at a certain level to kind of at least get familiar with it if not fully under understand it um and it's kind of like a a great musician uh, in town and friend uh, kind of described it as comparing like, I'm, I'm not a wine guy, so if you gave me a, a $10 bottle of wine or a $100 bottle of wine, they both sound, or like taste about the same to me. I'm with you. But but over if I got really into it, I would start to learn a little more and appreciate a little more about it. But it would still be good either way, probably. But see, when I try to describe <clears throat> it, and I was trying to think of it today, of how to explain the, the difficulty a lot of people have with jazz, is that blues, pop rock, whatever, classical, to me, they all seem sort of linear. There's a, there's a very clear melody and there's a very, it, there's, you go from point A to point B and it's very easy to understand. There's usually verse, chorus, verse, bridge, verse, chorus, and out you go for a lot of these. Jazz seems so much more random. That was the word I came up mm. with. It just seems so much more random that it's, there's more things going on that are unexpected and not as following that path. Is that a fair description? I, I can see where that would come from. I mean, uh, going back to a more traditional way of playing jazz, which kind of stems out of you know musicians taking popular show tunes and stuff of the time, like great American songbook music, mm -hmm. and they would take the choruses of those songs and play those and start improvising over kind of the chords that are happening underneath. I think, er, like earlier on, like just kind of playing with the melody a bit, then getting into these full-blown improvised solos. And 
that it's all kind of happening on one consistent set of like core changes. And it can be hard to hear that and people might kind of stretch what it means to be playing that song. Um, I, I like to think of it as you think of a, like a rock band where you have this kind of verse chorus, verse chorus thing. Um, they're kind of reciting this pre-written mm-hmm. passage to you. And with jazz, it's more like they're having a conversation about agreed upon topics. Like the song itself is kind of the topic that they're just talking about. So how much, uh, it, when I pick up your album, how much of this is pre-written and how much of this is you in the studio with your band improvising and going with it and seeing where it goes? There's a, a bit of both in there. I put a, a, a lot of work into the compositions and I think a lot of the artists that I'm really into right now um, put a lot of work into trying to tell a coherent musical story and that's a big part of my sound and then leaving room for the other musicians to, if not have you know a full extended solo, which there's at least one on each of these, each of the songs on the albums, but still leaving some room for them to kind of leave their mark and explore. Yeah, say what they have to say about that piece of music at that time. Now, for those who, and, and I probably fall into this category, I don't want to sound again like I am a jazz expert. Um, you were described, like I wrote this down, um, I read something where you were described as a guy who was performing between jazz and fusion. What does, where is the difference between jazz and fusion? What do those two things mean then? What, that was a great line. I'm just not entirely sure I understood (laughs) what it meant. It sounded great though. It does sound great. Um, I think. uh, What is fusion? So fusion refers to uh, a style of music that kind of started coming out around the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, which at the time was called jazz rock fusion, kind of pioneered by guys like Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock, where they were taking this whole jazz lineage that they had been working in and starting to incorporate elements of you know, the rock bands that were popular at the time and adding electric instruments, which at the time was a very you know, shocking kind of thing. So fusion kind of starts there and it becomes its whole own thing. So I like to think of like in that example of existing between jazz and fusion or however people want to describe my music is I'm writing music that has its roots in some of those roots are in jazz and some are in that still in that progressive rock music that I listened to in high school as well as folk music and you know R&B and soul and all these different things are kind of coming together and trying to for me it's about kind of making sense of all these different influences and things I've been in, interested in since I've been listening to music. Okay, so you go back now because you said in high school that you were into lots of different forms of music, still are. Uh, when did jazz, what caught you then about jazz? What made you decide, you know what, if I'm going to choose one of these paths to go down, it's going to be jazz. What was it? I mean, that's that's a good question. I think... I mean, I was there a song? Was there an artist? Was there someone you said, I got to be like that? Yeah. So on two different angles, like I mentioned earlier, I kind of came about with some like earlier, um, more classic jazz and some, some of the more fusion-y stuff. And with the fusion stuff, it really spoke to the musician in me. Like there was a lot of chops in these players that were like phenomenal musicians. And I wanted to kind of be able to play like that. And then on the 
the other side, um, one of the musicians I mentioned before, Charles Mingus, I was really captivated by his music itself and his um, sound as a composer. Like, there was this kind of organized chaos to the music. It's a great see. That's that's <clears throat> the description that that a lot of people would have of jazz. Yeah, I mean, he was able to kind of tap into something with with him especially. There's this almost like primal kind of thing to his music, which is very. It's intriguing. It's scary. It's exciting, and that kind of looseness was kind of very interesting. And over time, it's been trying to. Um, kind of dig into that kind of conversational, interactive part of it that still continues to be the most interesting part of it for me. Now, did you get it right away? Or no. was it was it a, an acquired taste, kind Def- of? Definitely an acquired taste. Is that typical, do you find, for a lot of people? Are there a lot of people who hear jazz the first time and go, got to buy every jazz album that's out there? Or are there a lot of people who, it takes a little while to really get the flavor and what they really love about it? I th- it's probably the latter of those. It w- would be my guess. I mean, that's uh, certainly my experience. Of I heard a couple things, and you know, a light started turning on, but maybe not immediately. And over time, especially once I started playing it more, that kind of helped me understand the music a little more and kind of engage with it on a different level. But I mean, I mentioned as kind of I came in that um, I think for a lot of my peers, like kind of current up-and-coming generation of jazz musicians. Most of us didn't grow up listening to this music around the house. We just kind of stumbled onto it. In a, so your parents didn't play it on Sunday afternoons around no, the house? There were no uh, Sunday afternoon <laughs> jazz parties at the Cheeseman household. I can guarantee you that. Are there today? No. <laughs> <laughs> Mom and dad must love the music, though, that you produce, that yeah, you create. They're they're very excited. They've become jazz fans. Yeah. Is there a big Hamilton jazz scene? And, you know, I mean, the jazz scene, that's how, that's how you're supposed to describe it, right? The scene. But, I mean, is there is there a lot of jazz in this area? It seems like, I mean, right now is uh, a really good time for uh, jazz in Hamilton, I think. I mean, there's, you know, Mohawk College has, has had a, a jazz program for a long time with a lot of really great faculty. Uh, McMaster has um, some great jazz classes in uh, ensembles. And then for the last uh, five years, there's been this kind of small-scale Steel City Jazz Festival that's been happening, putting a spotlight on a lot of the great talent that is here. Um, there have been a few um, venues that have been around for a long time. There's the Cat and Fiddle down on Augusta. When I was at Mohawk, um, that was kind of like the go-to destination Wednesday nights for the, the jazz jam. And I think it's definitely here in the city, and I think... Where is the... I mean, you mentioned the Montreal jazz. Is Montreal... Where Where in Canada is the big... The hot spot, or is there one? I mean, there's got to be some. I think Toronto and Montreal seem to be the biggest two, just... I mean, with the sheer density of people in these places, there's um, a, a bigger audience and more... It's easier to kind of, like, target something that's a little more niche. Um, so when you go to Montreal... Honestly, you are more recognized, regarded, famous there than you are in your hometown. I don't know about that, but maybe <laughs> maybe eventually. I mean, I think uh, Montreal and Quebec in general has a kind of different attitude towards the arts than um, a lot of the rest of the country. And I haven't been playing there 
for very long, but um, each time I go, it, it seems like it's kind of building more and more. For me, at least. All right. So I want to try something here. And I mentioned it to you just before you came on. And I don't know how this is going to work. This could be epic or it could be epically bizarre for people listening. So we're going to try it. But we're going to play Will has something queued up here from your new album that's not out yet. It's going to be coming out. So for most people, even those who are huge jazz fans, they haven't heard this before, probably. Walk us through. Help us understand this almost as if you're doing play-by-play of a sports event. Well, first of all, what's this song called? Uh, this is a song called The High Tide. The High Tide. All right. So take us into it. What are you, first of all, what are you doing here? What are you, as the bass, as the composer, you're leading, right, in this? Yeah. So uh, this is kind of a, a long, winding uh, guitar and bass melody that uh, I wrote. Um, you could almost think of, I mean, this is kind of a more tricky one, more involved uh, compositionally than some of the other ones, but... Um, so it starts with uh, this a guitar and bass melody that kind of opens up into this. We're going to move into a little guitar passage. Are all the guys in the band, and they are all guys right now, right? Are all the guys in the band completely aware of where this is going from the moment you guys turn on the mics? Everyone knows exactly what's going to happen here. Yeah. I mean, we're all reading. Uh, like it's all written out for everyone. Um, here, uh, you know, the sax finally enters and it's kind of guiding the song for a little bit. You have composed the underlying melody. You've put that, but when each of them has their solo, do you just say, you got 42 bars, knock yourself out or? Yeah, pr- pretty much. They have um, the chords and a general idea of how it's supposed to kind of go together. And, you know, we obviously rehearsed a little bit before this. Um even, so wh- even through a lot of this, uh, like the drums aren't a specific thing. It was just kind of plays something that's appropriate for this. And So when you rehearse this, did it sound basically exactly like what it was when it was done? Or does everyone tweak it a little bit as you're going along each time you do it? It's always always a little different. This, this piece in particular is a little more written out than some of the other ones. So it's going to be a little more similar performance to performance. But there are going to be variations each time which is i mean interesting it's, it's, it's exciting as a performer because nothing is ever the same same thing so if someone sees you in concert and they have this album they're not going to hear exactly what's on the album it'll be similar but it's not yeah. going to be exactly the same they'll hear the same melodies and you know general ideas of the pieces but they're not going to hear the same sax solo that's happening right now i do have to ask though as a guy who is the leader of this band, who's the composer, the bass seems like an odd instrument to be the front man. Because it's, I mean, you can hear it. Certainly it's being played, but, you know, Miles Davis was trumpet. I mean, you could not miss the trumpet. I mean, it was, and, and there's a lot of it. Is it unusual to be running things from the bass, basically? I mean, I don't know about unusual. Um, I think it's kind of, I like being the bassist band leader uh, position of being able to kind of be in the background of this, and especially with some of these great musicians, um, some of these uh, the guys on this album we've been playing with for years, I like being able to kind of put the spotlight on them and have, you know, it's my music, the the structures that we're kind of improvising on and the melodies we're playing are mine, but it's not often about me, which is kind of nice. You're for okay me. with that? Yeah. So every now and then there might be a bass solo, but. 
You even gotta, you even gotta, I get tired of bass solo. Oh, see, I was so. gonna say you gotta have a bass solo in every song now. Pull the you know the <clears throat> Getty Lee of jazz musicians now and just uh, go heavy on the bass and everything. <laughs> you know what? This is great stuff. This is really uh, this is really outstanding. When does the album come out? When can people get it if they're interested? The album uh, will be out on Bandcamp and iTunes on August 25th. It's called The Tide Turns, and um, we'll be performing in Hamilton on September 22nd at Artward Art Bar which is uh, on Colburn Street, just off of James North. And we'll have plenty of copies there as well. Um, the album features myself on electric bass, as well as Robert Chapman on guitar, uh, Juno award-winning saxophonist uh, Kelly Jefferson, um, Sam Kogan on piano and keyboards, and Marito Marks on drums. It is one of those, as I said off the top, it's one of those styles of music that I don't think unless you listen to it more than just dropping in every two years, you're going to get the full appreciation. But I, all day today, I was listening to this, and I got to tell you, it is uh, it is fantastic stuff. And Thank it's, you very uh, much. It is, it is something I will be listening to a lot more of and hoping that I eventually become able to explain jazz a little better. Because <laughs> well, <laughs> Brad Cheeseman, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.